Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Of course, I'm a huge fan of ChatGPT, and I use it all the time, and I, I don't fear it. I just think this is a, you know, we really are at a transformational moment in the augmentation of, and I don't think the replacement, but the augmentation of human intelligence. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the perception box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. Unlikely collaborators, the only way forward is inward. Later on in this episode, I'll talk a lot more about the perception box and how it relates to this episode. But right now, let me tell you about today's guest. Today, we welcome Bob Mankoff to the show. For 40 years, Bob Mankoff has been the driving force of comedy and satire at some of the most honored publications in America, including The New Yorker and Esquire. He is founder of Cartoon Collections, parent company to CartoonStock.com, the world's most successful cartoon licensing platform. For 20 years as cartoon editor for The New Yorker, Bob poured over thousands of submissions each week, analyzing, critiquing, and selecting each cartoon. In 2005, he helped start the New Yorker Cartoon Caption Contest. Bob is the author of numerous books, including his New York Times bestselling memoir, How About Never? Is Never Good For You? My Life in Cartoons. In this episode, I talked to Bob about the psychology of humor. Looking back at his illustrious career as a cartoonist, Bob talks about his early beginnings and the people he's mentored in the field. He explains the anatomy of a joke and reveals his all-time favorite cartoons. While humans are creative creatures, Bob believes that using AI and technology can further augment our intelligence and humor by opening up worlds of possibilities. This was a really fun chat. Bob is hilarious, as you might expect, but also really thoughtful and really forward-looking. I really like how he ties the future of AI to the future of creativity and also his ideas about the theories of humor. This is really fun, and I know you'll have fun listening to it. So I now bring you the legendary Bob Mankoff. Bob Mankoff, it is such an honor to have you on the Psychology Podcast today. Well, I am thrilled to be here. I'm a, a big fan of uh, psychology, except for, as I mentioned in my note, the fact that it really deals with humor. Yeah, yes. We'll definitely talk about that today, and I know you're a big fan of psychology. I wanted to start off by understanding a little bit more of your journey into comedy, maybe even starting as a kid. You know, what were you like as like a, a young kid in school? Were you a good student? Were you cheeky? <laughs> I don't think most people who are talented in comedy are good students. <laughs> I think they... Uh, I mean, traditionally, they haven't been good students. Traditionally, if you go back to, you know, old-timey comedians, you're going to see people who got kicked out of school, mm -hmm. uh, who found the whole school environment incredibly restrictive. And 
I think I did too, certainly. So I, I don't think I was a terrible student, but I was certainly an unattentive student. I was attending to other things. I mean, school is incredibly boring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the, end of the truth. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredibly restrictive environment for a young boy in that, okay, you're supposed to sit still for hour after hour and listen to people talk to you about things that are hard to understand through talking, somehow this medieval way of communicating information. And so, no, I was, you know, I didn't get in a lot of trouble, but I was certainly, I would say by the fourth or fifth grade, I realized that that I was funny. <laughs> and that was like a card that I could play in life. Although I don't think certainly at that age, you know, in the fourth grade, oh, this is the card I'm going to play. But in a in an instinctive way, you understand this is a an influence, a power that you have that can get attention and can make people like you and can make fun of other people. So it's got that, it's got, it's got this, these, all these dynamics in it. And certainly in the environment I grew up with in Queens in the 1950s in a Jewish neighborhood, you know, this, you, the Jews weren't fighting each other. You know, when you ask a Jewish kid, like, what's the worst fight you ever got in? It was something like, well, one time this kid really gave me a noogie. Like, I would say most kids that I grew up with, and now they're all in their 70s, and they say, have you ever been in a real fight? A real fight? They haven't. Okay, but they fought with their mouths. They fought with ranking, with insults, with that, you know, was that, that, that was the way, that was the daily kind of combat that existed. Uh, ridicule, mockery. That's a, yeah, ridicule and mockery. You know, Trump comes out of that too. Comes out of that environment too. So he's, he's a Queens guy. But so that I think is somehow a training ground for the, you know, that kind of combat, but also for training your mind from seeing, ang you know, different perspectives. Then I went to the high school of music and art, which was one of the specialized high schools in New York City, along with Brooklyn Tech. Uh, and Bronx High School of Science. That was a high school you had to get into and, uh, by passing a test, but it wasn't an academic test. It was a drawing test or a music test. So wow. it was the high school that was later featured in the movie Fame and maybe the remake of oh, Fame. Wow. Although they conflated both the high school of performing arts with the high school of music and art for the movie. Music and art had music and it had art and I, I did art. So that was, you know, part of the journey, I guess. And then, you know, that, that in a circuitous way led me eventually to be a cartoonist. But before I was a cartoonist, uh, I was a psychologist, an experimental psychologist at City University where I tortured pigeons and rats in ways that are not acceptable anymore. Wow. What did you do? What, what kind of studies? Uh, behavior, you know, out and out behaviorism. I just talked with, with someone from that era who was about my age, who is still, you know, came out of the Skinnerian tradition, the behavioristic tradition of schedules of reinforcement, the effect of reinforcement, negative and positive reinforcement on behavior. And, uh, you know, that very, uh, polemical time in psychology, uh, which is in some way being reenacted now, but in artificial intelligence. It's being reenacted. So when you came out of the Skinnerian tradition, it was the mind is a black box. You really can't know. It's inputs and outputs, inputs and outputs. And that's all you could know. You really couldn't know what was going on in there, those independent variables. So let's just look at behavior. This goes back to Watson and to positivism and stuff. So I was very much enamored of that. It's, it's a young man's philosophy. It's a, it's a, it's an extreme philosophy. It's, uh, um, you know, but eventually, both, it didn't make any sense to me, and I didn't make any sense to them, this yeah, yeah. The program I was in. So, I mean, and also my pigeon died. So there was like a number of things, you know, you put the, you put either mice or rats, but often pigeons in a, in a Skinner box, and they pecked on a little disc, and they got rewards for reinforced behavior. And 
you know, the, I, I think the, there are truths of behaviorism that are important and simple. And, but a lot of things that are very simple, you know, that behavior that's rewarded increases in frequency and, and, and that the schedules of reinforcement, the, you know, one of the things we see now with artificial intelligence is that based on a very simple, simple principle, very simple, that just predicting what the next word is going to be about vast amounts of data, you get emergent behaviors. So behaviors are sort of based on that, based on that a little bit, but I drifted away from that. But then, but that's in my background. So when I got interested in the psychology of humor experiments, I think I had, I still had that analytic attitude. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you got into the performing arts high school through your artwork is that right like were you yeah. a good was it cartoons were, were cartoons at that point what you did was you you had a portfolio of things that you drew and it could have been landscape you were, gotcha. you, were, you were getting in for art and eventually you took courses in architecture there and painting and sculpture and all of that and one of the things when i realized they are being there was there were Lots of people much more talented than me artistically, but it was satisfying to know that they all became dentists while yeah. I became a cartoonist. So it worked out. Yeah. I, I had just the right amount of, of ability that could mesh with my yeah. humor because my, the other road not taken was to, be, was to be a comedian, which I thought I might be. But there, when I was went into college in the early seven I mean in graduate school and ended up being a cartoonist 71 72 there weren't a lot of comedy clubs there weren't it wasn't didn't really afford you that possibility so I think if I had been born a little later five years later I would have ended up going into comedy not cartooning because I think comedy yeah stand up but, yeah. you know, I think it worked out. For me, it did, because that's a very difficult field, and it's a field which is most people burn out. Yeah, for sure. Being a cartoonist is also more suited for introverts. I don't know. Are you an introvert? No. No? Okay, cool. You're an extroverted cartoonist. I can, I can pretty much see I'm not. <laughs> okay. But, well, I mean, not, but you're right about that, that many yeah. cartoonists are introverts, although, I mean... I would say that there's part of me that's definitely introverted. I'm gregarious and, 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 but I'm gregarious when in company, but there is parts of me that I like being alone. And, you know, I guess like a lot of things, we have these uh, dichotomies, these polar things that we oh, yeah. say to people. And that, and then we tend to say, well, but, and people are anywhere along the continuum. But I think people are more, a bunch, some people, myself, are what I'd call bistable. In other words, we're both. Uh, we're introverted both and extroverted uh, in different so. situations. I have a performance aspect to me. But the other aspect to me is that, you know, if I'm just like exaggerating is, ooh, I'd rather not see someone than see someone. Yeah. All sequel. All of a sudden, I'm walking on the street like many people. I think if you're an extrovert, you see uh, 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 Barry Scott Calpin. I'm just using an example. Hey, Barry, how are you? And I'm saying, oh, I don't know. I'm not in the mood right now. So, <laughs> but, I mean, that's my, uh, that's my take on myself anyway. I, maybe I really ought to lock this down by the time I, I'm going to be 79. I ought to really find out what I am. Well, you know, there, the term is called ambivert. There is a term for it. Oh, really? Um, they, you, you just you invented a new term, <laughs> the bistable. <laughs> well, bistable, bistable is is a theory about emotions, the bistability oh. of emotions. I've never heard and, of that. Okay. For instance, I guess I get it from from uh, this this theory called reversal theory, which says when it deals with humor, it says we're often we're often in we're in different modes, what's called a bona fide mode, where I'm talking to you logically about whatever. And then we were a purposeful mode and then a playful mode. And, mm -hmm. and, and when we see people in normal interaction, we see they're bistable. They're moving from purposeful to trying to get, a, you know, like, like Grace's maxims, right? And then all of a sudden they create some sort of fantastical scenario that the person understands is humor. So that's where I guess where I get that term.
but ambivert is ambivert is, is better. And also it sounds a little bit more sexy, yeah. even though it has yeah. nothing to do with sex. What I am, I, I coined a new term to explain what I am because it took me many years to figure it out. I'm a wild introvert is what I am. Uh-huh. And so that's a new category. Uh, that's just an introvert who scores very high in openness to experience. You know? I see. Um, Interesting. I, and I'm very so, I'm a sociable introvert as well. <laughs> so well I, anyway. guess, I guess I'm like that too. And I, but, and I don't, I don't score high on, so that's where I'm introvert. I don't score high. I mean, it depends what the experience is. If the experience is humor or art or technology. I'm, uh, you know, I'm very open to that experience. What I'm not open to is, you know, I was once asked, you know, what's your, what's your travel advice in an interview? And my answer was, don't go. So, <laughs> so I am going on a little vacation to the Dominican Republic. And, but part of me is already dreading just, oh, what's going to happen? The plane, this, that, not the plane crashing or anything, just all the things. Um, so I'm not open to like new physical experience, and uh, I mean not completely close to it, obviously, yeah, but open yeah. I think to intellectual experience. So yeah, I mean so certainly, and to contradictory ideas, that kind of stuff. I wonder if there are actually terms. You know, we think of these in terms of you know emotions and in meat space, you know, the real world, but. I think you could also look at it in terms of intellectual space, right? Okay. And I wonder if they're correlated. What do you think? You know, are, you know, you could be introverted or extroverted and looking at, at the openness, you know, especially in the time now where people are not open to contrary views. So that's know. one of the facets of openness to experience is openness to new ideas. I see. And then there's openness to aesthetics. There's openness to your emotions. There's open. There, there's a whole bunch of different uh, sub facets. That's, that's actually the topic of my dissertation. Was called the paper. The paper that I published was called "Opening Up Openness." I see. You know, a well, four-factor model. You expanded yeah. the idea because, yeah, yeah, of yeah. that wouldn't be what you would normally think of the. It was experience, yeah. right? Actually, that's right. You think experience, but the the full domain openness to experience encompasses openness to a lot of things but yeah the imagination and intellectual components of it are um are very important equally important yeah 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 uh and we're yeah that used to be a given that that's a good thing and everybody still gives lip service to it but that's all they they give to the service to it most people are not for I mean, and that—that's. Uh, I think that's more. It's more natural to not want your 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 beliefs that you've long held, you know, contradicted. And when I say I'm looking for contradiction, I, I don't know how much I actually am. I think, like everybody else, I'm very much subject to confirmation bias. I am so excited to announce that registrations are now open for our self-actualization coaching intensive. While the coaching industry has taken great strides over the years toward integrating more evidence-based coaching approaches, there's still a lot of work to be done. Many coach training programs still lack strong foundations in science and do little to incorporate research-informed tools, methodologies, or approaches for helping clients thrive. For 20 years, I've dedicated my career to rigorously testing ways to unlock creativity, intelligence, and our potential as human beings. Now, for the first time ever, I've compiled some of my greatest insights to bring the new science of self-actualization to the field of professional coaching. This immersive three-day learning experience will introduce you to self-actualization coaching, an approach intended to enhance your coaching practice by offering you evidence-based tools and insights from my research that will equip you to more effectively help your clients unlock their unique potential. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Join us and take your coaching practice to the next level. Go to sacoaching.org. That's sacoaching.org. I look forward to welcoming you in December. Yeah, yeah. Well, just so you know, like aspects like thrill-seeking and adventure-seeking actually are more tied to extroversion than openness to experience. So openness to experience really is about your cognitive exploration, your openness to cognitively exploring 
your inner and outer world. Yeah. And that's related to humor because the the That's um, you. Yeah, it's you. Well, it's also related to the kinds of humor you like. In that, yes. in that, in, in that, the degree of incongruity or lack of closure that you can tolerate in humor, and yes. in fact, that you know, this guy Rook, UCH, who in the psychology of humor has done a lot of work on saying what are the you know when you do factor analysis of humor, what do you see the big domains, and what you see is people who like closure. Yeah, I can explain the joke to somebody else. I can explain it to myself. To people who like weird humor or zany humor or things, and that's true. And you see a correlation there. You know, I th- now I'm of course remembering what you're saying in terms of you take someone who likes weird humor, they're more likely to like weird art or 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 atonal music or all sorts of things. Uh, in which, uh, you, well, you're just open to it, but then sometimes there's an intellectual dimension. There are some people who like things that are unusual so that they can intellectually engage with them and explain them. You know, maybe, I mean, uh, you know, when I went to the high school of music and art coming from a bourgeois background, that was one of the things of, really, this is art? What is this? But the art was the, but the art was the art of talking about the art, not the art itself. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And then, you know, also you can go through each of the personality domains. People who are disagreeable tend to like a certain kind of uh, cutting humor. They like making fun of other people. Yeah. 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 In terms of the humor, you find, you know, this guy, Rod Martin did work on this where you find aggressive humor. Yeah. Clearly, what that is, you Clearly. find affiliative humor, which sort of makes people a group of people feel better about themselves, yeah. or it's a way of coping, maybe in a difficult situation. Uh, you find self-enhancing humor, which is very difficult, but you know, but does exist when you can. You're not with a group of people. You're you're undergoing some stressful situation, but somehow you can see it in a comic way. In, in, and, and therefore you can cope with it. So you can enhance. And the other part is, is so, sort of self-denigrating humor, which is different than self-deprecatory humor. It's humor in which you make yourself the fool or whatever. And supposedly, or to some extent, evidentially, that the more healthy humors are affiliative. But there's always a mix because a lot of affiliative humor within your group is actually aggressive to an outgroup. Right. I was going to say, what if you boost yourself by making fun of others? Yeah. Right. And so that, you know, what you find is that that people definitely do that. And that's for performance. That's fine. In real life, you will find that you end up not being liked very much. And it's not going to be great for your relationships with other people. Mm, Although if you're in power, it doesn't matter very much. I mean, one of the things that power gives you is the ability to do these things rather than any pushback. You know, you see how power is related to humor in that the boss is funny, right? Or you're going to laugh at the boss's jokes. Um, anyway, a whole, it's a whole interesting area, I think. Because if the boss, even if the jokes aren't funny, if the boss is at least, if the bo- well, as long as the joke isn't directed at you, if the boss is joking, it's probably in a good mood and you're not in danger. Right. And then in terms of power, there's also that fascinating research showing that self-mockery is, uh, is, is considered uh, very respectable if you're in a position of power. Like if, you're, if you deprecate yourself and you're in a position of power, that is, people respect you more. But, if you're, but the opposite, if you're a loser <laughs> and you use self-deprecation, they confirms to everyone you're a loser. <laughs> Because the self-deprecation is understood as kind of inverted praise of yourself. That's right. Yeah. You know, it shows how powerful you are that you can make fun of yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know I mean? If you're in a position of power. If you're in a position, in a position of power. position of power, yeah. you can make fun yeah. of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I do think that real, you know, I mean, it's a funny definition I'm getting, but I think the deepest humor yeah. is the humor in which you actually within your own mind, make fun of yourself. You realize your own ridiculousness. And the, you know, the, that's a way of, 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 of tolerating your own, your own fallibility. Uh, yeah. And, 
and actually just a perspective on things, a perspective on things. It's only, it only exists temporarily before you just go back to the usual uh, dread of existence. <laughs> the, 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 you know, the, the, the overwhelm. I don't know. I can, I can get freaked out by like stuff like, you know, I'm listening to the history of English podcast and they're talking about the evolution language, the Germanic tri uh, tribes, the Etruscans, you know, the Indo-Europeans, and you look at the scope of history, and then it's, you know, the guy is saying, and then a hundred years later, you know, the Germanic, and you realize your life is so short. It's been so huge, you know, the whole scope of it, the whole scope of it, and you're, you're, you're here at like the, t the tip of it, for a moment before you just get sweeped in with the Etruscans. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it just, it just, it just sometimes just gives me a shiver in a way, just to think how much has gone. And the other part of it is the way I think about it. You look at, oh, those fucking Etruscans. They're so primitive. They, they didn't even have an alphabet. Oh, they finally get an alphabet. They borrowed from the, the, uh, I forget the Etruscans borrowed from the Greeks now. Maybe they get it from the Ita Italians or something. And you know, and everything finally had the alphabet. And they think, well, we're here at this apex of civilization. And, and out there in the black universe or whatever, 10,000 years hence, you know, there were the robots looking back at us and thinking, I can't believe it. They were made completely of meat. How did they get anything done? And the meat was rotting from the beginning at the start. It's like they had the, the, you know, they'll look at us like we look at mayflies, you know, they're just here for a second. Anyway, I don't want to depress you or anything because you, because I know you have a book to write and you, which is going to last throughout all of history. And eventually those robots will be reading it and said, yeah, he was made of meat, but it was a pretty smart piece of meat. You know, and I'm sure we'll have robots trying to get someone else to um, have a business meeting and the robot says, yeah, how about never? <laughs> Which is your... Is that, there hasn't been my cartoon. There hasn't been an interview. Yeah, that... that uh, I not mentioned it. I don't think that... Yeah, so uh, my joke there is I'm well enough known now that, that as long as I don't live too long, I'm sure I'll have an obituary in the times. So that, that's, a, that, that's an interesting perspective also. It's like when you think about, well, how important to you is the times obituary? And you realize that, you know, there's, there's like a sweet spot for, for the best possible obituary. And it's probably not, not like 102 when everyone's forget, forgotten you. So it really, for my obituary purposes, it'd be good if I, if, uh, if I knocked off in a year or two, but anyway, in any case, I think I know I know what's going to be in my obituary, which is that. Yeah. And of course, I'm a huge fan of ChatGPT, and I use Me it too. all the time. And I I don't fear it. I just think this is a you know we really are at a transformational moment in the augmentation of, and I don't think the replacement, but the augmentation of human intelligence. And the, it's very easy to find flaws in this, but if you interact with it at all in an intelligent way, you, you will be amazed, simply absolutely amazed that these problems, which people have said are impossible to solve without some deep symbolic knowledge of language are not impossible to solve. It's right there in your face. <laughs> you know, if I, you know, so before I got on here, I was interested in, in stuff like how the internet changed humor and stuff. And, and, and I sent that to you and the concept. And I was unclear because I've been read by the concept of affordances in psychology affordances like what you know so i and, and like so an affordance it comes maybe out of ecology biology like okay what what is the affordance of a stick for a dog well not much what's the affordance of it for a chimpanzee quite a bit and so i could go up on chat gpt and i could say how does the concept of affordances apply to this image this image of the New Yorker caption contest, what are the different affordances it gives linguistically in terms of its image, in terms of its irony? And within 10 seconds, it's listing the affordances that are 
interesting and correct and then can make me think of ideas and it will also think of ideas. The ability to do this is, you know, nothing less than astonishing and to remark that, oh, but, you know, it makes mistakes in math or, or it makes things up. This is a big criticism that makes things up. I think that shows that it's more like a, a general human intelligence than not. Okay. In that we, when we, when I'm talking about affordances, I can't look it up. I have to actually recreate the idea of it. And I often get things wrong. The fact this is generative language, it generates it. It doesn't look it up. It's not like it has the whole, doesn't look it up at all. So I find that, you know, we're, we're at, we're at the beginning of, it's not, I don't think these things are sentient because they're not, they're made out of the wrong stuff. I've said that. I think what they are is they are, sort of cognitive savants. Savants, okay. And they can do things that no human being can possibly do in a combinatorial way. So, for example, and most people haven't experimented with much as I have. So, for instance, I could say to her, as I just did uh, a while ago, I said, uh, imagine this is a scene from Seinfeld, okay, in which Jerry, uh, 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 George, Elaine and Kramer are all watching Citizen Kane, okay, on a TV set. And the TV set goes out and they all decide to act out the rest of the movie because they know it well. Write me that scene. And it instantly writes the scene. In other words, it can combine that idea, those ideas in a combinatorial way. So these are things that people that are almost impossible for people to do in any way. Okay. You know, you would need this kind of parody and to do it immediately. So I, I mean, so right now when I, I, you know, I, and the way I'm using it practically is this. I have a company, cartoonstock.com. Cartoonstock.com is half a million cartoons. You can go to a search bar and you can say, I want cartoons on psychology. I want cartoons on skiing. And you can look at filters. I want this cartoonist. I want this publication. That's horrible. That's a horrible, unnatural way for a human being to interact with anything. So I'm using um, um, what, I, what I want and will, I hope, have by the end of the year is you'll go to cartoonstock.com. An avatar is going to pop up and say, what cartoons would you like for? And you'll say, I'm really looking for cartoons about accounting and regulatory issues because this is what I'm interested in. And that's what it's going to find for you. And so we are, because this idea of understanding intent, see, right now, my database doesn't understand intent. It doesn't understand what you, it can only understand if it's the same word. We've all had that experience on the internet. It's got to be the right word. So this whole thing is really opening up to explore, you know, so now in terms of the book you're writing, you could interact with it, not to write the book, but to ask it how to, how do you think this concept relates to another concept? How could you build on that? And so that we see, for example, I could go right now and I could say, here are these two books, Jude the Obscure and Catch-22. Is there any essay? So, you know, it's, you know, people, uh, I don't want to name names are saying, Oh, yeah, it just writes a B essay. It, it'll write an essay on something no one could write an essay about that, that, that would actually make you think, is there any relation at all between Catch 22 and Jude the Obscure? Well, you know what? It's going to give it a try. It, it's going to give it a try. So to me, it opens up sort of like the caption contest. It is, there are worlds of possibilities. Now, can they, can you go to the next step where you go from this kind of extrapolation and combination to real, you know, ideas in the physical world and physics, I think you will. And it doesn't mean that I think these are conscious agents. I think we we have now, we're on the, 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 the cusp of developing a tool like we developed machines that augment 
you know, exponentially our powers. Now everyone worries, well, maybe replace us completely. I'm, I'm going to be replaced completely anyway in that 10 or 15 years. So I don't give a shit. Well, do you think that um, chat GPT will ever be good enough that it will uh, win a New Yorker cartoon contest? Yeah, definitely. Wow. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm entering now. It's doing okay. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm entering now. Now I'm still like tweaking it a little bit. Because mm-hmm. humor is hard in that way. It doesn't, it's not hard for it to come up ideas that are in, that are in the, in the ballpark, but then you usually massage them a little bit. And honestly, we're just really at the beginning, uh, uh, of this. Uh, we really are just at the beginning of it. You know, you know, if you look at it and naturally, like everything else has become a, a tribal argument when people who, you know, uh, who think apocalyptically about everything. So this is yet another, this is yet another way that we're all going to (laughs) die. You know, I know, I know people uh, catastrophize. We talked about this, about the negativism involved. And I do think that we're, we're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of with Steven Pinker on this, that in general, in general, we're better off than we ever were, which doesn't mean there are, aren't horrible things. It's just we have no conception for the most part of how horrible it used to be. That's very true. So I asked, I asked chat GPT, what's in common between Jude the Obscure and Catcher in the Rye? And this is what it said. One of the common themes between Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy and The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger is the disillusionment of the main characters with society and their struggles with the expectations placed upon them. Oh my God, it's still going on. There's like four paragraphs. And Jude I the Obscure, the, oh my gosh, both I mean, novels, I'll just jump to the end. Both novels also deal with themes of isolation, loneliness, and the search for meaning and purpose in life. Additionally, both works are considered to be controversial and were met with criticism upon their initial publication due to their frank and honest portrayal portrayal of society and the human condition. Okay, now, okay, now just say, write this as a poem. And it will write it as a poem. <laughs> oh, my God. I uh, This is this is incredible. Jude oh, and Holden, oh, two oh. lost souls. <laughs> wait, wait, this is amazing. Jude and Holden, two lost souls in search of truth and seeking goals. Their world so different, yet the same, disillusioned with society's game. Jude dreams of learning, of books and thought, but society's barriers, his dreams are fought. The class system rigid, poverty accursed, his hopes and aspirations, they do submerge. It goes on and on and on. And well, on. So, so this is the point most people don't experience. So you understand it can't have looked that up. Okay, no. it can't no. look it up. It is generating it. Creativity. You know, by you know, we keep moving the goal. I mean, what el- what else would you call that? Yeah. You know, what, know. El- what else could you possibly call that? Amazing. And the the and but somehow at this stage it's being compared against the highest uh achievements of combined humanity. <laughs> combined. You know, rather than how do, how is this in relation to any single human being? It's well, it's just sort of astounding, and you know, I guess maybe a little bit frightening. Or, but I, I guess this is where my openness to experience comes in. <laughs> I'm open to this experience, and I've always been open to this kind of experience because I, I guess I'm a futurist. I feel that the you know we. This is what we are meant to do in some way as a species. I think so. To invent so. and to create and to transform. And, you know, for people who, you know, I'm not with people who think the Industrial Revolution was a bad idea. I think it was a good idea. We wouldn't be here talking about this. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I encourage people to be open to the, open to these technologies and to use them, you know. It, you know, there's it, no choice. I mean, you're now. I do think there will be actually it, there'll be money to be made with these, and there'll be money to be made against it because there's a whole neo luddite sort of faction who you know wants to think that we uh, should uh, basically, well, basically, they're luddites. They think we should give up all of this technology, or that this is so dangerous because it could create misinformation. It's actually pretty hard to get it to say bad things. It's working against that. And if you want a world of bad things, just go on Twitter. No, nothing, 
chat GPT can't possibly match that. Oh yeah, that's true. So you have mentioned that a couple things are really important to you for your legacy. One is that you created the Cartoon Bank in 1991, uh, even though it started in 97. Um, and that you, secondly, you helped bring a new generation of cartoonists into the magazine. Who are some of the cartoonists you're most proud of bringing into the magazine? Well, I brought in Emily Flake, who's uh, brought in some, uh, you know, women uh, cartoonists like Anna Fink on the uh, uh, male side. Uh, I brought in Matt Diffie and uh, Drew Dernovich and Ed Steed and Harry Bliss, just slews of cartoonists. The But I made it hard on them to succeed because I, uh, you know, I will say it's different than it is now in that I was looking for people who could consistently produce cartoons week after week. And I was not looking at uh, either their ethnicity or their sex, gender, anything like that. For me, these things are, uh, uh, as criteria, are reasonable in some situations. I didn't think they were reasonable here. I didn't think, you know, uh, and, but, you know, I'm for, I mean, I understand the power of history to make the moment different for some people than other people. But yet, for me, the most, everyone can be interested in what they're interested in. For me, I'm just interested in the cartoons. That was, that was, that was my job. It would be someone else's job for, for something else. Or society's job, really. Society's job, if, if there, if it has one or the government has one, is to create educational systems that can free enough people up to do sort of things like submit cartoons to the New Yorker. <laughs> right. Well, I think that a big part of the DEI uh, push is to, so that people who look like, you know, the person who has achieved can be inspired um, in some way. Who are some of your favorite black cartoonists, for instance? Uh, I don't have favorite black cartoonists. I mean, you know, I have favorite, you know, cartoonists. And, mo and really, there are almost no black cartoonists who... Uh, 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 my favorite cartoonists were the cartoonists who appeared in the New Yorker. And, you know, and so very few black cartoonists, uh, uh, published primarily in the New Yorker. So Rob Armstrong, who is a really good cartoonist, but a comic strip cartoonist, he had a few cartoons in the, in the magazine. But, you know, my, 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 my favorite cartoonists happen to be white. Although there, there are a number that happen to be white. That's what I grew up just like. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You know, that yeah. happen to be white. But I never thought of it that way. And I don't really have favorite cartoonists. I have favorite cartoons. I'm, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, you know, what I'm interested in is actually the output, not the person, really. I'm happy the person did it. But in the end, the cartoon cartoons I did, the cartoons Raj Chast does, the cartoons exist separate from them. That That's the beauty of art, really, and the beauty of comic art or anything, that what you do is, you know, I, you know, you know, I think in, in uh, the producers, the Mel Brooks movie, maybe there's a joke where he says, you know, Hitler was a good dancer. Okay, so if Hitler was a good dancer, he was actually a good dancer. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. And if he was a yeah. great painter, he'd still be a great painter. Okay. And he'd be horrible because he was Hitler. But okay. And if, you know, and, and you know, that's, that's our history, really. If we, I mean, I'm not a fan at all of Donald Trump and I didn't vote for him and I wouldn't vote for him. I think he's a pretty bad person. But, you know, if he invented a cure for cancer, I'd say, you know what? Let's use it. You'd give it to him. You'd give it yeah, to him. Yeah, I'd give it to him. I, uh, but I would, or I would not even give it to him. I would I would say, oh, let's use this cure. Right. I mean, of course it gets complicated, uh, but, you know, in the end you have to make a choice. And my choice was to look primarily at the cartoon, or in, or almost entirely at the cartoon. Today's podcast is sponsored by Unlikely Collaborators. Their mission is to untangle the stories that hold us back as individuals, communities, nations, and humanity at large. Using the Perception Box lens, they do this through storytelling, experiences, impact, investments, and scientific research. 
today's conversation with Bob really illustrates the importance of expanding the walls of our perception box. The perception box is the invisible mental box that we all live inside, and it can seriously hinder our ability to understand one another and to understand ourselves. According to Bob's theory of humor, humor is related to laughter, and laughter is a kind of mechanism that allows us to deal with incongruity and surprise. Laughter is often a relief after thinking something is going in one direction, and then it surprisingly goes in a very different direction. From a perception box perspective, we can use humor to expand the walls of our perception box. Humor gets everyone in the room in the same mode and then lets us all let go together. This can relieve worry and stress and also connect us to each other. By resolving something we didn't expect, our assumptions about other people can change radically in a way that is totally delightful and surprising. To find out more about Unlikely Collaborators and the Perception Box, go to unlikelycollaborators.com. I want to double click on my favorite and everyone's favorite cartoon. Uh, no, Thursday's out. How about never is never good for you. Now, look, I use that line so often. <laughs> you said you would never use that line except when the Grim Reaper comes for you. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> how about never? Well, I say, how about never is never good yeah. for you. I, I did it in my book and, and saying cute, let's go. I know. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because among all the thousands of cartoons I've done, People think, oh, you must have thought that was wonderful right from the start. I, I think I did 15 cartoons that day that I was going to hand into the New Yorker. That was the last one. And it, it came about because I was talking with someone who was blowing me off. And <laughs> a, a cartoonist named of Dick Klein, who could be difficult. And then, you know, I said, hey, Dick, well, why don't we? And then I, I just got like pissed at him. I said, hey, Dick, how about never? Is never good for you? And once I said it, I thought, oh, that's good. And then I, then I, you know, rearranged it. So the guy is on the phone doing that. But I, but I, but I mean, this is often with the case in that that's like a, from a pre-viral era, something sort of going viral that got reprinted thousands of times, put on bumper stickers, put on panties, put on, usually it's. I saw compressed uh, how about never is never good for you you know the Thursday's out and now I have the trademark for it and you know so I can put it on panties if I want and uh the uh or and wear those panties if, if I so desire but yeah, the, oh, yeah. The, yeah who knows you know it's not too late it's, that's in that's in these days Bob that's that's cool it is yeah, it's cool. Men wearing panties. Well I can yeah it's cool it's cool <laughs> it's woke that'd be woke of you that would be woke of you well <laughs> I'll, let, let me think about it. Let me think okay. about it. I did give an idea to a cartoon that appeared in Esquire, Ben Schwartz did it, where it said toxic masculinity detox center. And there was a sign that said, Woken's welcome. <laughs> that's okay. good. That's so, good. Uh, that's good. Yeah. So that's a cartoon. I can't, I can't fight the, uh, the market on that. I put my that cartoon through the reprints through cartoonstock.com. That's the company I run now, people. If you want to get a cartoon, if you want to get Thursdays out. Uh, so yeah, so it's uh it's uh it's the cartoon, like I said, that'll be my obituary. It's so good. Um well I mean, you've but you've written uh nine hundred and fifty cartoons at the New Yorker throughout the years. I've done my research on you. So you know, do you have any of, I mean, what's your personal favorite? Is that one your personal favorite? The Thursday one? Well, no, it's, it's I mean, I've done, you know, all, all sorts of cartoons. I've done cartoons. One cartoon that got reprinted from 81 that got reprinted was it's three fish. There's the first fish is thinking there's no justice in the world. The second fish who's eating is thinking there's some justice in the world. And the third fish is thinking the world is just. And that cartoon gets, so that's a cartoon that sort of has deeper meaning for me, or even a, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'll often do cartoons where I like to look deeply into a topic, you know, when we talk about abuse of power. So there's a cartoon in which, um, one politician is saying to the other, they're walking away from the Capitol. But how do you know if you really have power unless you abuse it? And so it's these cartoons that have a kind of, you know, a, a, you know, a kind of deeper insight. And then sometimes I'll just do ordinary cartoons about relationship uh, cartoons where the husband is saying to the wife in bed, uh, what's your position on some sex marriage? 
So the 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 uh, that's uh, funny. That's funny. <laughs> or then you know you know you know when they pile up chairs when they put them away and sort of one top of the other. I did yeah. a cartoon which was called "How Chairs Have Sex," and the so I'm open. So there are a lot of cartoons that you know uh, uh, you know come out of personal you know experience. Uh, uh, um, you know, where a doctor said to me it'd be a routine procedure. Uh, and then, you know, I said to him, yeah, it's a routine procedure. If you, if it's, you routinely have your stomach cut open and someone fiddle around with your insides. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. And so then I'll change that into a cartoon. You know, for him, it's a routine procedure because he, he's, he's, ends, he's in lunch and I end up having a tube coming out of my dick that, <laughs> It's full of blood. So I I don't find that routine. That's never happened to me before. Me neither. Me neither, for the record. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of my favorite products that helps me big time with my gut health. You might wonder why the Psychology Podcast would care about gut health. Mental health and gut health are unrelated, right? Well, actually, mental health and gut health are very highly related. It's so interesting, actually. Your gut has hundreds of millions of neurons, just like your brain, and the gut forms a two-way communication pathway with the brain known as the gut-brain axis. So in addition to limiting bloating and optimizing digestion, add mental wellness to the list of reasons you should optimize your gut health. Qualio Symbiotic is a great and easy way to optimize your gut health every day. Qualia Symbiotic packs 28 of the most research-backed prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics into a simple scoop you add to a glass of water for extremely complete gut support in just seconds a day. It even has psychobiotics in the blend, which are a specific type of probiotic ideal for supporting brain health and mental wellness. And it has spore form probiotics, which are more bioavailable than most probiotics on the market. It covers all the bases of gut support in an all-in-one scoop that doesn't even need refrigeration. This is the easiest and most complete gut support blend on the market, made by Neurohacker Collective, a company I really trust. I've known the folks at Neurohacker Collective for years now, and they are really thoughtful about what they put into their products, always trying to be as science-informed as possible. To try Qualia Symbiotic for up to 50% off, go to neurohacker.com and use Psych Podcast for an additional 15% off. For gut health support that covers all the bases, including brain health support, try Qualia Symbiotic with code PSYCHPODCAST at neurohacker.com slash psychpodcast. So I want to talk about the cartoon contest. Um, Roger Ebert won it once. Isn't that right? He did after I think he, forget how many, maybe it was 111 or 141 times that he submitted. And <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, pissed off. He had said, you know, he has submitted more. He has worked for the New Yorker without pay for all these years. And then finally he did win it. And I'm friends with uh, Lawrence Wood, who has won it eight times and been a finalist 15 times. And he's writing a book, which will be out in 2024, September call. Your caption has been selected, which I've sort of been working with him on. It's going to be published by St. Martin's Press for a nice advance, which is going to give you the whole history of the contest, uh, which uh, starts on a weekly basis in 2005 and now probably has four or five million entries. And we have a data, there's a database online with all these entries that uh, you can find out why you lost. Wait, but let's find out about why people win. You know, tell me your theory of humor, Bob. I think this is a good point for you to actually just uh, just just uh, just riff on this a little bit. What makes why is Lawrence Wood so good at this? And and is he good at like would he be good at stand up? Like, have you talked to him about I this? About I mean, I don't think I think he'd be okay at it. Michael Jordan was pretty good at baseball, but probably oh, right. Good point. Good point. Not good enough to you know be you know. So there's not complete transference. I'd say, you know, I think humor is based on, in a primitive way, it comes, obviously, it's related to laughter. And laughter is a kind of mechanism that lets us deal with incongruity and surprise and to relieve tension. The simplest kind of laughter is sort of relief laughter, where you, where you think something bad is going to happen and all of a sudden, it doesn't happen, even just dishes dropping in a restaurant. So that's the, the basis of it is all of a sudden a 
change that temporarily seems bad. And that's true of any joke. In, in all the times you laughed at what I said, there's a slight delay in your brain where you're actually a little bit confused, which is not what your brain wants to be before you reinforce Common state for my, yeah. for me. Common yeah. state. Yeah. That's a common state for my, for my brain. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. So, so you reorient. So a joke, I mean, so a joke is more elaborate. It's a script that goes one way. In the in in the Thursday's Out cartoon, the script is one of politeness. There's a man looking at his, his address book. No Thursday's Out. How about? And what we expect is some sort of date date or something going along with politeness. Instead, it falls off a cliff and becomes completely rude. And so the script changes, you know, completely. And the arc of a joke is almost from. It's always that way where, you know, you, the surprise and the incongruity resolution has to be at the end. So if I have a joke, as I did in or a cartoon, uh, in which an executive saying uh, to a board, he said, gentlemen, the upside potential is tremendous, but the downside is jail. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I can't work the other way. It can't be home and the downside is jail, but the upside potential is tremendous. It's not a joke anymore. Okay. And the, the, and, and so that tells you a little bit about the mechanism in our brains that works that in which you get a joke. You don't get dishes falling and all of a sudden it seems like there's something bad that you don't get it. Oh, I understand it, but. What happens is in a joke, we put a little layer, a little cognitive layer on it that's pleasing to us. There's a pleasure of understanding it, pleasure of oh, putting it all together. And the it, what's interesting is we put it all together, but we don't have to spell it all out. We don't have to spell it all out. It's actually rather hard to explain it. You know, so if if there's a joke in which the doctor is saying to the patient, You'll be awake during the entire operation. And then he says, the anesthesiologist is on vacation. Well, okay, that's a terrible thing. He's, he seemed like he was telling him a good thing because it seemed like it was going to be trivial. Yeah. And he was telling yeah. him something horrible, which also can't be true. And this is what I mean by the bi-stability of our cognition. And we move to we're, pro- we're processing information right in a reasonable way to in a more fantastical, uh, whimsical, uh, paralogical way. We still understand it. We understand it makes sense now that he would be awake because he'd be in horrible pain because he because he'd be cutting up. But but at, at the same time You like that joke. I you like that. that. I could tell. I could tell. I like it because it's both and, and this goes to what's called a benign violation theory. There's something very wrong about it, about what we're picturing. Horrible, and yet it's perfectly okay because it's a joke. And I think one of the things that's been lost in our present moment. Yes, I well, I agree. As Mel Brooks said, "Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die." And of course, that's just a joke because that would not actually be comedy. He didn't know. So, so what's interesting about that is our we understand it as a joke. That makes a bigger point. We understand it as a joke. This is what I'm not as a real statement, because as a real statement, first of all, that (laughs) would never be funny, right? And and also, he's what he's done is he's he's used exaggeration on both sides of it to tell you that it can't possibly be true. And I mean, this is the whole field of pragmatics, right? Where, where we're dealing with, are we dealing with bona fide communication or are we dealing with humorous communication? Well, you know, you make a really good point. Uh, well, that was a good point, but also earlier you made a really good point about how you said we're kind of society and where we're at today is, is not so accepting of, of, of humor that might offend or humor that might, you know, so what, what are your thoughts about, you know, cancel culture and, you know, all this, this attempts to censor comedy. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think it's horrible in general. I think that everybody, it, it just uses a kind of very, very broad 
language, you know, which is uh, to condemn people for uh, uh, for, for as uh, part of, I think, a kind, of, you know, a kind of uh, ability to control. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I think it's a bad thing. I think it's everyone can be subject to, I think, criticism. But it's it's also partly of it's partly of you know what's what's reasonable, what's excessive, what's becomes ridiculously insane. Uh, uh, you know when uh, let's say this is a, a Jack Ziegler who passed away, but has done so many great cartoons, and one of the great cartoons he did that I love is. Uh, it shows a gallows with its steps, but it also has a ramp for the handicapped. And, okay, so that's so funny and sort of horrible in a way and was published in The New Yorker, but would never be published now because mm. because people write, what they want to know is what side are you on? Are you for people, uh, places being accessible to the handicapped or not? You know what I mean? And then what does this say about capital punishment? Is the cartoonist for it or against? Well, Jack wasn't for or against anything. He thought this was funny. It is funny in its own space. And you don't, making a joke doesn't mean this is anything that you believe about anything. This is your ability to be funny in this context. So I, yeah, I would, uh, you know, I'm sure... It looks like cancel culture has had its moment, thankfully, and uh, and it looks like that moment is is passive. <laughs> I think people are, but it's too broad in a way to. I mean, I'm for free. I'm you know I'm for free speech, and cancel culture seems, or certainly uh, some kind of characterization of it, is clearly just for free speech to plants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Did did you know that uh, did you know Jack Ziegler by the way? Did you know him personally? Yeah, very well. Very good friend. Very good friend for many many years. And uh a fantastic uh, cartoonist, a wonderful person too. And he was a good example of someone whose cartoons were very very wacky and wild and yeah. he personally was not. <laughs> So this is once again separating that the you know the person from the, from you know from what they produce. I love I love the one with the boat and he writes my first boat upside down. Boat. Yeah, <laughs> so many and they're all on cartoon stock. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I kind of want to ask you, uh, you know, one of my last questions here for you, uh, if not the last question. Uh, what else in your legacy? I mean, I mentioned two things, but I'm giving you a, ch a chance to free just free associate here. Just you know, what else do you want in your legacy? What do I want in my legacy? What do you want to leave? Well, well, the, well, I do, I do, I do, you know, my personal legacy is my, my daughter, my wife, of course, I want mm. everything to work out for them. Uh, but the, I think my, my leg, I, I do want to, uh, be able to use these new tools of artificial intelligence to augment human creativity, especially in humor. I want to mm. create you know, I want to you. I want to. It's been a white whale I've been after for a long time, and now they're there to actually have uh, us, these uh, collaborators to create humor that wouldn't have been created before, more interesting. And I do still think there is. I think we're collaborators in this. So just what I said before. What it turns out for that particular script is not really good. The fact that it could do it at all, that could create the Citizen Kane script and everything at all, I say, know. gee, well, maybe this is a way to be, create things that never could be created before, that neither the computer could create, AI could create before, or human beings, but some sort of uh, synthesis could. So I want that to be part, part, uh, yeah, part of my legacy also. Beautiful. Well, I want to end here today with a poem I would like to read for you. And sure. please just uh, let me get through it. Bob Mankoff, oh, how great he is. When, with wit and humor, he never misses. He's the man behind the New Yorker's cartoons, and his talent for laughter, everyone swoons.
He's a master of the one-liner, a comic genius, a true designer. His cartoons, simple but witty, always leave us laughing and feeling pretty. <laughs> Where the fuck did that come from? Oh, hold on, Is this you or chat GPT? Oh, hold on, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. He's been at it for, this is chat GPT. He's been at it for over 40 years, bringing joy and humor to all his peers. He's won awards. He's been recognized. His humor, timeless and never compromised. Bob Mankoff, a legend in his own right. A true, no, notice it didn't just say a legend. It said a legend in his own right. A true, insp- <laughs> a true inspiration, a shining light. For he shows us that laughter is key and a sense of humor can set us free. So let us raise a glass to Bob, a true comic hero, a master of his job. May his humor continue to brighten our days and his legacy forever stay. Well, I'm Thank very, you, Bob, for I'm being very, on the Psychology good. Podcast. Now we have Alan Ginsberg do that. But the, the, you'll see it. We'll give it a shot. It'll be, or E.E. E. Cummings. It'll be quite, quite interesting. Oh, I see my – maybe I have to go now because I see the dog. I think these dogs, the dogs are going to bark. Good place to end here. Thank um, you so much for being on my podcast, Bob, and I hope you liked that poem. I did. I love it. Uh, uh, maybe not for my obituary, though. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, <laughs> Thank you time. so much, Bob. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.